7th today. Is it January 7th? Yeah, it's January 7th. Uh, today, so that's the last possible uh, date to have a first Sunday. It feels like we've been in 2024 for a while already. Though I haven't gotten used to writing it yet, but, you know, I'll get used to writing it just in time for 2025. That's how it goes. But um, I want to talk about what we live for. What we live for. Let's stand together and we'll read Luke 12, beginning in verse 22. We'll read down to verse 36. <clears throat> These are the words of God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth neither moth corrupted. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him and be delivered. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we consider a passage here that's a very defining passage, Reminding us of what we're here for, what we, uh, what your purpose is for us. And I pray that we would believe you and believe your word and that we would trust you. And I pray that that trust in you would grow. And Lord, we know that you bring trials and tribulations into our lives in order to expand, to stretch us so that we'll learn to trust you more, so that our confidence in you will increase. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us right priorities. And as we uh, launch into this new year, I pray that our priorities would be right according to your word. Please bless in the message, Lord. Please use the message to stir us and teach us and instruct us. I pray that we would love you and delight in you and delight in your word, that we would receive it gladly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus was, at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, he was hot after one of his favorite targets. He had drawn a bead, as he often did, 
on the Pharisees. And he said, in Luke 12 and verse 1, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, and then he tells you what that leaven is, which is hypocrisy. See, this is what a lot of people get wrong about the Pharisees. They think that Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was that the Pharisees had high standards or had high, you know, had a lot of standards or rules or so on. But Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was primarily that the Pharisees were hypocrites. He said it over and over again. They say and do not. That's what he said. They lay heavy burdens on you, grievous to be born, and they won't lift so much as a finger to help you with it. They strain out the gnats and they swallow the camel. See, they had all their rules, and Jesus, in fact, said, everything that they bid you to do, make sure you do it, but don't do it the way they do it, because they say and do not. That's what he said, over and over. So Jesus starts out with this warning, and he's, this is a warning shot he's firing across the bow of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Don't be hypocrites like they are. He, he wanted his disciples, and what you see here in Luke chapter 12, the beginning of the chapter, he wanted his disciples to know who they should fear. He wanted them to be faithful, to follow him, and he knew that their faithfulness to follow him was going to mean that they were going to face opposition, severe opposition, from the hand of the Pharisees. And Jesus also knows our nature. The Pharisees are well respected. They are religious authorities in Israel, the conservative Jews who were the most likely to follow Jesus and to love his teaching. Those conservative Jews were going to face severe opposition from the Pharisees because the Pharisees rejected Jesus. And so Jesus goes into a discourse here about who to fear. His point is, don't be afraid of them. They, they're running a great bluff, but they're hypocrites. Be afraid, he says, instead. Be afraid of the one who is in control of everything. The one you will face in the last day, not the one you're going to face in this day, the ones you're going to face in this day. So he warned them to fear the Lord and not to fear the Pharisees. Look at verse 4 and 5 as an example. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which, after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now that's a good warning for us, by the way, for all of us, because the Pharisees are dead and gone, and to this day, the term Pharisee now is considered an insult, not a recommendation. 
Not a form of flattery to call someone a Pharisee. Nobody thinks that they're being honored if someone calls them a Pharisee today. And that's thanks, by the way, to the tremendous work Jesus did in destroying their good reputations, which obviously Jesus is pointing out that their reputations are not earned. All right, what they've earned is the derision that I'm about to cast on them. <clears throat> so Jesus said, that they'll drag you before the magistrate, but when they do, don't be afraid. Take no thought, he says in verse 11. By the way, that phrase, take no thought, is repeated a number of times in this chapter. Take no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. So Jesus is giving them assurance. Be faithful to me. Don't fear them. Fear God. He's the one to fear. God will take care of you. You be faithful to me. Now that's a wonderful sermon, isn't it? That's a good thing. For people who are interested in Jesus, who are listening to Jesus, who are hanging on to his words, that is a tremendous message. And I don't believe that Jesus was finished with the message yet. But he was interrupted. In the middle of saying these things, important things, right? Jesus is interrupted. One of the listeners just can't contain himself anymore. And so in verse 13, we see, see that one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now, this, you shouldn't despise this guy, all right? I'm going to tell you just from experience, you shouldn't despise this guy. Nobody here should despise this guy, and I'll tell you why, okay? Because I can't tell you how many times I've stood up here and I've sweated and I've breathed out fire and brimstone and I've preached with passion and fervor and I've come down thinking that surely the Lord has worked through the sermon and I come down from the platform and someone catches me to tell me about a problem that they're having in their life. Pastor, can you fix this for me? Pastor, what about this right here? Has nothing to do with my sermon, but it's very evident that they spent the entire sermon thinking about their problem and what they wanted me to do about their problem when they were done. Now, I don't say that in order to discourage you from talking to me at all. If anything, what I would like to do is encourage you to have like a waiting period. You know, after the sermon is done, give it a little time, just a little time for the sermon to sink in before you go back into all your problems and all of your griefs and all of your sorrows, all right? I'm just saying, you know, I know we carry burdens. I know that, and I know that I hear, I am the pastor of the church, and God has put me in this position in part to help you bear those burdens. And so I, I want you to know that I will not say to you, can't it wait like 10 minutes? I'm not going to say it, all right? And now you're going to say, yeah, but you're thinking it. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm thinking it. 
I'm thinking, why can't we wait just a little bit, a little bit? Like, text me later or something about it. But, you know, I we do get very consumed with our problems. Now, Jesus was not tender. In case you're thinking bad thoughts about me right now. Because I'm thinking bad thoughts about you when I come down off the platform and you immediately launch into all of your problems from the week. I'm just going to tell you that I'll be a little more tender about it than what Jesus was with this man. Because Jesus rebuked the man. He said, look at verse 14. He said, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And then, to add insult to injury, Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Now, isn't that a familiar opening line? Like at the beginning of the chapter, he said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And now he says, take ye heed Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now, it's interesting to me, you know, I'm always interested in um, how the biblical writers, like Luke, put these things together in their presentation for you. And what they tell you and what they don't. Now, we don't know what they're leaving out or how how all this happened. We don't know all of that. Luke puts it all together and gives you kind of a stream of consciousness, uh, plays it for you live. So you're listening to Jesus speak. You hear the interruption. You see how Jesus handles that disruption to his speaking here. And Luke does that because he wants you to see, he wants you to see, he's going to make a point here. Now, of course, Luke is making the point in the presentation, but of course he's telling you what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So this is what I want you to notice. Jesus immediately, after he warned the audience to beware of covetousness, and reminded them that a man's life consisted not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Jesus immediately told a parable of a man who prospered enough that he would never need to worry about money again for the rest of his life. Now, let's just pause for a minute. Can you imagine being in that position? To never need to worry about money again in your life. Not because you just decided to stop paying your bills. Move to a homeless encampment, find yourself a shopping cart, push it around, pile it up with blankets, and uh, live that way, off the grid, right? But never have to worry about money again because you have so much of it that you couldn't possibly spend it all. Let me, let me ask the question to you this way. Would you like to imagine that life? Huh. It might be like, that's impossible. But there are people who are like that. 
I remember a few years ago, a number of years ago, I've never used this illustration before, but there was a lot of criticism of one of Michael Jordan's sons because he went to Las Vegas and he lost in like an hour, he lost $50,000 and people were just like, oh, you know, because we can't imagine that. But then somebody took the time to figure out what Michael Jordan's annual salary is, how much money he earns every year, it's in the millions and how much money that would be per day, and pointed out that for it, comparing his salary or his money income to my income, that's like losing five bucks. And I say that because there are people who have so much money that we could not wrap our brains around it. We couldn't imagine having that much money, what that would be like. <laughs> But Jesus tells this parable of a man who doesn't have to worry about money ever again. And what the man did was he decided that he would tear down his barns and build bigger barns to store all of his substance again so that he doesn't have to worry about things. And then he decided that it was high time he enjoyed the security that he had gained for himself. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much, much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I've worked hard. I have gained a lot. I don't need to worry about money anymore. I'm just going to sit, take my ease. I'm going to live the retirement life, right? But Jesus pointed out the vanity and hollowness of this carnal security. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Clearly, there's an implication here that, as we all know, you can't take it with you, right? Did you ever hear the joke of the guy who figured out a way that he could take his gold he turned his money into gold and put the bricks in a suitcase and he figured out a way to take it into eternity. And when he got to, uh, you know, I mean, a joke like this, it's always the pearly gates, right? And St. Peter's always there at the gates. I don't know why, but that's the way the jokes go. All right, and this is a joke. I'm just telling you, irreverent or not. He gets there and he's got his suitcase full of gold bricks and Peter asks if he can see what's in the suitcase. And the guy opens it up and shows it to him. And Peter says, oh, that's interesting. Why do you bring pavement? <clears throat> you know, the point it being, not just that you can't take it with you, but if you could take it with you, it still would not be of any value. Because heaven's currency is not anything like earth's currency. Heaven's values are nothing like Earth's values. And the moral of the story provided by Jesus in verse 21 is this. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich for God. Now our text, which we began reading in verse 22, expands on this moral. But this is what Luke is doing here. He's showing you people who have their priorities wrong. Right? 
And that wrong priority, by the way, and that's why I admit, you know, I guess today we're starting off the year with a little toe stomping. All right, but that priority shows itself when you can't focus on a sermon because all you can think about is your problems. All you can think about is who offended you, who upset you, who wronged you, who did you wrong, and you're consumed with that. That's the case of the man in verse 12 who said to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Evidently, his brother, and this happens in families, somehow his brother had access to the inheritance and figured out a way to take it all, and there was none for him. And so he wants Jesus to be the one. I don't know if he thought that maybe Jesus would, you know, like, Jesus is respected, and maybe the guy would be afraid that Jesus would turn him into a toad or something. I don't know. But the man is not at all concerned about the subject matter Jesus is dealing with. He is all consumed with having. Having. He doesn't have enough. Maybe he was a poor man, and that inheritance would help him. And he is consumed with having. And Jesus is illustrating by means of this man our mindset when we become consumed with substance, consumed with possessions, consumed with having, consumed with money, consumed with security. And Jesus is saying that there needs to be a course correction. There needs to be a changed mindset in what you value. And he expands on that beginning in verse 22. He knows us very well. He knows our anxieties, the secret worries that we all carry. And so Jesus reasons with us about those concerns. He does this so that he can remind us of the things that really matter, the things that ought to consume our thoughts and minds and priorities. <coughs> Pardon me. God calls us to seek his kingdom, to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, because God loves to give us his kingdom. So Jesus teaches three things in this passage. First of all, possessions do not define your life. Secondly, God will supply all your need. And thirdly, God's people are people who treasure him and live for him. He teaches us these things first by addressing our worries, then by pointing out God's providence, and finally, by telling us what matters, what we should live for. That's what I want to preach this morning. First of all, I want you to see how well Jesus knows us. He knows the care and the worry that fills our mind. He does. He knows it. He doesn't just know it as a casual observer. He doesn't just know it as someone who has a morbid curiosity in our lives. 
The Bible is very clear about this, that Jesus entered our world so that he could experience the pain and suffering and sorrow and trials and difficulties that we have experienced. And he experienced them all. Every one of them. You cannot think of a painful circumstance in life that Jesus himself did not in some way experience. I would even go so far as to say that Christ's experience of the pain and sorrow and suffering of this life far exceeds our experience of it. Far exceeds it. Jesus came to this earth so that he could be a faithful high priest to us to intercede on our behalf. Now, God made us, every one of us, with an intense desire to survive. And with a deep longing, in fact, not just to survive, but to thrive, in fact. Every one of us have that desire. Our culture has been blessed in such a way that, really, culturally, we have not experienced the struggle for survival that is just a normal course of life for other generations and other cultures than ours. But that doesn't matter. I can tell you all day, I can tell you until we're all blue in the face, that modern day Americans don't really know what poverty is. I can tell you that, it doesn't matter. Because still, when we have problems, those problems consume us. They consume our minds, they consume our thoughts. They do. Just do. If you have an unexpected bill, it comes up, it bothers you, it worries you. You weren't prepared for it. Maybe you don't have the money to pay it, and it fills your mind, and you're thinking about it all the time. You just aren't. We worry about things. You hear a strange noise in your car, and what does your mind do? You start thinking about everything that could be wrong with your car. And before too long, some of you, especially more prone to this than others, by the time you're done, the car's gonna blow up before you get home, right? And you're all gonna die. You're thinking, how fast can I get the seatbelts cut off of my kids, right? Dire consequences, every little thing. You hear a strange noise and you think the house is gonna collapse. Next thing you know, I hope the insurance is paid. But then you think, oh, it's probably not paid. And then we're just gonna lose everything, right? And this is how we are. This is how we think. This is how we worry. We worry. We worry that we won't be able to afford to live or to maintain our lifestyle or to support our family or to put food on the table. Look, you know, the last three years have been brutal on people economically. I've said many times, uh, four years ago, news stories were all about how uh, there was record rates of savings in America. That American savings accounts have, had reached record highs. And now, four years later, we have record debt, record low savings, record high debt. In just a few years, we have all felt the pinch of increasing costs of living. All of us have, and so it is 
not strange or unusual that we would worry and be anxious about these things. Even if you've never missed a meal because you didn't have money for food, you still worry that you will run out of food money and you wonder how am I going to keep this, how am I going to maintain this? We worry about our old age. Will we have enough money to meet our needs? Will we be able to live on our retirement or social security or both? And I'm saying to you that Jesus knows these concerns of yours. He clearly knows it based on what we see here in this text. Notice how he opens up the passage. He's just illustrated with the parable of a rich man who never needed to worry about money again. That guy had the temporal things all squared away. He had security. It's very rare that a person can get to that place, but some people have managed. But Jesus points out that his man only had security in this life, and Jesus is saying that this life is not all that there is. It is not all that there is. That's his point here. At the end of this life, every one of us will face eternity. In the parable, God required the man's soul of him that very night. That very night, the man had everything squared away. He was clearly, he believed that he would outlive his wealth. No, he did. He was right. I, I'm sorry, his wealth would outlive him. That's the opposite. Most of us are worried that we will outlive our wealth. This man knew that he could not live long enough to spend all of his money. And he was right. He didn't live long enough to spend all of his money. He died that very night. Security in this life does not translate to eternity. Period. Earthly wealth and earthly security don't help a bit when you hit eternity. Heaven, as we said, does not operate on man's currency. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Security in this life, financial security in particular, comes from simply having on and holding on to enough money that your money outlives you. That's it. I mean, it's simple. Not easy, but it's simple. Plenty of other things contribute, of course, to our security. Good health, good reputation, good morals, independence of life, lots of money, the power to enjoy and protect your property and possessions, those things. But again, none of these things prepare us for eternity. And none of this will protect us in eternity. Only one thing will prepare you for eternity, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrificially shed blood is the currency of heaven. And you either have that applied to your account or you do not. If his blood is applied to you, 
then you have security for all of eternity. If you have no part with Christ, then you face an eternity apart from God. The only way that you can access the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is by faith. You can go and work, you know, you work a job for money, and if you hit the jackpot, then you make lots of money. But the only way to have access to the blood of Christ is by faith. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Christ. God set forth Jesus to be the propitiation. There's a big, old, archaic word that I wouldn't change because there's not really an equivalent in our modern-day way of speaking. He is set forth to be a propitiation. That is, he is set forth to be a sacrifice that would satisfy God's demands for justice. God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation, to be that sacrifice that satisfies. And he is that propitiation through faith in his blood. That sacrifice is applied to those who come to God seeking for forgiveness and pardon for their sins. They rest in that blood that Jesus shed for their sins. They trust Jesus to apply his sacrificially shed blood to their sin so that their sin will be pardoned, so that they will, not their sin, but them, they will be the sinner pardoned. The sin is never pardoned. But the sinner would be justified to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God designed this way that Jesus would die our death and in doing so, in dying, would shed his blood as a sacrifice on our behalf so that he could be just in punishing our sins and justify those who believe in Jesus. You see then that security in this life does not mean security in the life that is to come at all. The two don't relate to each other whatsoever. We can make a comparison between security in this life and security in the life to come. We can make this comparison. Security in this life comes from having enough of the currency of this life that your money will outlive you. Security in the life that is to come, security in eternal life, comes from having enough of the currency of heaven to outlast eternity. The currency of heaven is the blood of Christ. When that blood is applied to you, it never expires. It never runs out. Its effect lasts forever. Hebrews 10, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, 
which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. The Bible is saying that the offering, the shed blood of Jesus, never runs out. It never loses value. There is no inflation. Once it is applied to you, once you have received it by faith, you are perfected forever by it. That's what the Bible is saying. So Jesus told a parable of a man who had security in this life. But Jesus has a clear message for us. If you lay up treasure for yourself and are not rich toward God, your soul will also be required of you. And as Jesus said in verse 20, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Again, Jesus knows us. He knows our tendencies. He knows our worries, our anxieties. He knows our priorities. But Jesus doesn't just know us. He loves us enough to correct us. So secondly, I want, to, I want you to see how Jesus reassures us. Jesus tells us in verse 22 to take no thought. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Jesus said take no thought. I'm not, I'm quitting my job. I'm just going to take no thought. You know, I've told you the story when I was a college kid, and I thought, you know, I wanted to really exercise faith, and so I was going to trust the Lord and not put gas in my gas tank. That's not a good idea, all right? Take no thought. He doesn't mean absolutely don't take any thought ever again. He doesn't mean that. He, he is not telling you to live like that rich guy, right? Who also was going to take no thought, right? That guy was going to take no more thought. He was going to tear down his barns, build bigger barns, and he was going to live off of all that substance. He wasn't going to run out. Before he died. He was going to take no thought. You shouldn't live like that. You shouldn't live like you have everything you need and you can just live it up now. Don't do that. The bills will come due at some point. You'll get the eviction notice and so on. So Jesus is not arguing here against good stewardship. He is not arguing against savings accounts. He is not arguing against paying bills. He means that we are not to be consumed with providing for our temporal needs. That's what he means. That your temporal needs are not to fill your mind. And that's hard. That's hard. Because no matter who you are, something comes up and you're looking at it and saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. I don't know if I can provide for this. But Jesus says the life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. And Jesus points out the way God provides 
for those parts of his creation that cannot provide for themselves. The ravens, for example, in verse 24. The lilies. Imagine being a lily. For some, it's probably not hard to imagine being a lily, but imagine being a lily. You have no feet. You have no hands. You can't go get food. You can't get a job. No one will hire you. People will sell you, but they won't hire you. And Jesus says that the lily is clothed just fine. In fact, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like a lily. This is what Jesus is saying to you. He talks about the grass in verse 28. He points out how valuable you are to him. How much more are ye better than the fowls, he says in verse 24. He reminds us of our ultimate inability to do that which is least when it comes to our own safety and security. And which of you, with taking thought, can add one, add to his stature one cubit? Matthew says, add one cubit to his stature. If ye then be not able to do that which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? And he reasons, if then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And then he instructs us, Verse 29, don't seek after these temporal things. Yes, provide for your family. Manage your money. Have a budget. Save. Plan for retirement. But don't be consumed with these things. That's what the men of this world do. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. He knows that. Isn't that wonderful? Just pause for a minute. Should we, should we put that up on our refrigerator somewhere sometime? Your father knoweth that you have need of these things. Should you put that on your closet, maybe? Your father knoweth. Should you put it on your front door? Your father knoweth that you have need of these things. It's not like you have to tell him, oh Lord, I need food. You don't have to tell him that. He knows that. Yeah. Now he tells you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But he knows what your needs are. He knows. <clears throat> Instead, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God. That is, make it your goal in life to live for God and to fulfill his purpose for you. Paul said it this way. I think Paul describes here what it means to seek the kingdom of God. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may lose Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Seeking the kingdom of God means that you seek to bring your life under his authority, that he is Lord of your life in everything. That's what it means to seek the kingdom of God, because he is the Lord of that kingdom. And so you seek for him to be your Lord. And notice the promise. All these things, your daily provision, shall be added unto you. It is, in fact, God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Spurgeon told the story of a poor man who made his living as a crossing sweeper. I don't think that's a job today, but I imagine in the day of horse and buggy, there would be good reason to sweep the crossings. And he was a crossing sweeper. And the man had invested the little bit of money that he had into buying the right kind of broom for the job. And it was an expensive broom. And he didn't have a lot of money. And so the man was very careful with that broom because that was his livelihood. He needed that broom to make his living. And so the man just made sure he kept that broom with him, always in his reach, always there. <clears throat> he didn't leave it laying around. He didn't let it out of his sight. And then one day, while he was at his job, at his work, an attorney approached him and tapped him on the shoulder. And the attorney said to him, my good friend, is your name so-and-so? And the man said, yes. He said, did your father live in such and such a place? And the man said, yes, he did. And he said, does your brother live in such and such a place? And the man said, he does. And then the attorney said, then I have the pleasure to tell you that you have come into an estate worth 10,000 pounds a year. Now, I can't really, I didn't look up how much money that would be, but I imagine it would be in the millions in today's dollars. Imagine. Someone taps you on the shoulder and says, I've been looking for you. You have inherited an annual salary of a million dollars a year for the rest of your life. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, I've been told that the man walked away without his broom. And I can hardly doubt it. For I do not think I should have shouldered the broom myself if I had been in his position. See, this is the point that Spurgeon is illustrating that I think is a beautiful point. Jesus is telling you that he has given you a kingdom which is infinitely more valuable than all the gold of this world. All right? Do you see how Jesus reasons with you? Here you are worrying and fretting about a few pennies. And God has given you the whole kingdom. 
Thirdly, I want you to see how Jesus instructs us. What do we do in light of what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is telling us to sell what we have and give alms. Now, let me just pause for a moment and let that sink into you. I'm not about to turn into a televangelist telling old widows, poor old widows, to send me your whole paycheck and God will reward you incredibly. That kind of thing has been done and it is a disgrace and a shame in our world. Certainly God is not telling you, you know, you live on a fixed income, you have this house that you and your husband have labored to care for and pay for over the years, and that's all you have. God is not telling you to sell that house and give it to the church, give the money to the church. Not at all. Not at all. That's not what he means here. We tend in this to go to one extreme or the other in the way we interpret a verse like this. Our tendency is either to skim over it as if it has nothing more than just you know, like pie in the sky, superficial application. Like this is, you know, good moral platitude right here. Or else we want to apply it in a wooden, mechanical way. It's wrong to have possessions. Wrong to have a nice house. Wrong to have a car that runs. <clears throat> no, it's wrong for you to measure your life by your possessions. That's wrong. It's wrong for you to live for possessions, to give your strength to acquiring more, to, as I said in our prayer breakfast yesterday, to get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. That's wrong. But it will be foolish for you to give everything away so that you have nothing to fall back on. That's folly. Now this past spring, we looked at the life of C.T. Studd, who came from a very wealthy family. His father died at a very young age, and so he inherited a fabulous amount of money, an incredible fortune. But instead of keeping it, he decided to give that fortune away and to trust God to provide his needs. Now, the gift made him very famous, and I'm not going to criticize him for that gift. I'll only say this, that God did not require him to do that. It's fine that he did it. It's not wrong to do it. But because of that, he wound up at times not being able to provide for himself and his wife. There were times, a couple famous times, when they, he and his wife did not eat for a week or two when they were over in China. And there was no money for them. And they had to rely on the charity of others. So he gave everything away and then had to rely on the charity of others. I don't think that that's what God is saying right here. I know that in another place, God says that if any man won't provide for his own, he is, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. God said that. So I think that we have to approach this biblically here. <clears throat> One of the commentaries pointed out that the believers in the early church would sell all their possessions and have all things common. By the way, there was a church I knew of down in Texas where they did that. When you joined the church, 
that part of joining the church was that you would sell everything that you had and you would give all the money to the church and they would divide the money evenly among the members of the church. Any of you for that? I see no hands. All right, motion fails. <laughs> Not a good idea. Not a good idea. And as the commentary pointed out, the result of that was that Paul had to go around to the Gentile churches and plead with them to take up love offerings for the believers in Jerusalem to provide for them in their incredible suffocating poverty. So I'm saying this, there is wisdom, immense wisdom in storing up for the future. Joseph and his brothers would agree with that. But the Bible also tells us this, there is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meet, but attendeth to poverty. Jesus said this, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6 says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he, as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not, of, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work, as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. This is what Paul is saying. Now, that was a long passage, and maybe you got lost in the middle of it, but Paul is just setting before you this. I know you're worried. I understand your anxiety. This is what Jesus is saying. But God will provide for your needs. He will meet your needs. <laughs> Don't be stingy in giving. Don't hold back more than what you should give. Sell what you have. If, if your possessions consume your heart and consume your mind, then sell what you have and give it to the poor. That's what he's saying here. Sell that you have and give alms. Don't let your abundance and your concern for the future Keep you back from giving when you ought to give. Because when you do that, then you provide eternal riches for yourself, as verse 33 says it. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, 
neither moth corrupted. And this is the point. Put your treasure where your heart ought to be. Put your treasure where your heart ought to be. Invest in those things that you ought to be concerned with and caring about. Now, recognize how invested you become in those things that you invest your money into. Recognize that. Because we are all this way. You pour your money into something and you're invested in that thing. And this is true of anything that we do. You buy a car and you're invested in that car. You're concerned about that car. You buy a house, you're invested in that house. You love that house. You're consumed with that house. You think about that house. You invest in the stock market. You buy stock. I can tell you what stocks I own. And I can tell you, I look to see how they're doing as well. I'm concerned about them because I'm invested in them. I want to hear good news about them. I don't want to hear bad news about them. God is telling you to put your money where your heart ought to be. That's what he's telling you. The more of your money you spend on a thing, the more you invested you will be in that thing. And so he says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Jesus urges a readiness to do the kingdom work, the work of the kingdom. Of course, of course, you must work hard to provide for your family. You must be diligent to, to, to care for the money that you have, to make sure that you take good care of that money and to manage it. Be a good steward. Nothing Jesus says here should make us say, I can be lazy, God will provide. Nothing like that. The New Bible Commentary explains that Jesus is not talking to lazy people, but to worried people, and to those who are tempted to join in the rat race. They should trust in God and keep their priorities right. If you're going to lose sleep over something, Lose sleep over the work of the kingdom, not over your daily bread. Be like those men who are watching for their Lord to return, because those men are the ones who will be truly blessed. So here's the point. Live for the eternal, not the temporal. Prepare for tomorrow. Don't squander what you have. God is able to provide to supply all your needs. Don't live for what you have. Don't live for what you need. Don't live for what you want. Because as Jesus tells us, a man's life consisted not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Live for God. Treasure him. Every single day. Treasure his authority, his lordship in your life. Treasure those opportunities that you have to obey him and to live according to his word. Treasure, treasure the opportunity that you have to advance his work in his kingdom. Treasure that. What a privilege we have, you and me, to serve God in this generation, in this day. 
Invest in the eternal. 